Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. From Autosport Magazine, Autosport.com, I'm Kevin Turner and this is the Autosport Podcast. We've got a special uh, podcast today, looking back at what you probably could argue is the most technologically advanced period in Formula 1 history. We're looking back at the 1993 F1 season. Lots of great stories, lots of interesting cars and joining me to talk about that championship, which was three decades ago. I really can't believe that. I remember it well. Hopefully, uh, some of you listeners will remember it as well. And hopefully, it's, we'll be bringing some new stories to, to people perhaps less familiar with it. So, first of all, joining me is uh, former oh, editor-in-chief of All Sport, former editor of Motorsport magazine, all-round fantastic person and journalist, Damien Smith. Damo, how are you doing? Uh, are you looking forward to talking about uh, 1993? I'm sure it's a year you remember well. I'm good, Kevin. Yes, uh, thank, thanks for having me. Um, yes, 93, I was at university at the time. Um, uh, so I've got some memories of that period. Um, and from a Formula One perspective, I, I was at the British Grand Prix that year. So um, I didn't get to Donington, unfortunately, because I was in the middle of my studies. Um, and it it it, uh, it didn't work out. But um, And I didn't have any money either, which didn't help. But I did manage to get to the British Grand Prix. So, yeah. So, so were you one of the thousands that groaned as Damon Hill's Renault V10 blew up while he was in the lead? I was, yeah. I was just thinking about that. I, uh, I was at Club Corner and um, he came round, obviously, um, leading. And we thought, this is looking pretty good. And, it, you know, it looked like it was going to be his day. And I remember seeing him go through Abbey and suddenly there was a plume of smoke and I thought, oh, that's it. And of course, he got a bit further around, and that's when he stopped. So um, we got a little bit of forewarning at our end of the circuit that it was about to about to finish. Yeah, yeah. And that, of course, handed Alain Prost his 50th World Championship Grand Prix win, which he was the first person to do that. A few others have done it since then, but that was a milestone then. Uh, but also joining us is our F1 writer and technical guru. Can, I can call him that, I think. Uh, particularly likes the back end of the grid. So all the problematic cars we'll be finding out about a bit later. Jake Botzel-Egg. Jake, uh, looking forward to this one. I know you're not quite as old as us, are you? But I know you've got an interest in 90s F1. I was actually born in 1993. So if you want to know what I was doing through most of the season very little um sorry to make you feel old guys um, but honestly it's such an interesting season to go back over because 
as you say, it's one of the most technologically advanced seasons. Um, I guess off the track, it wasn't so technological because CAD was still in its infancy and we we're still getting to grips with those kind of simulation tools and that kind of thing. But inside the cars, it was a completely different beast. Um, we haven't had, you know, traction control since 2008 and, and launch control sort of made a brief comeback in the sort of mid 2000s. But um, we never had all of those kind of innovations together until, uh, until well, since 1993, rather. Yeah, well, let's get into the car that really kind of led the way on that, I guess. That's the, the Williams FW15C, uh, which actually the FW15 was originally, of course, meant to come out in the European season in 92. But Williams realised that, that full, the cobbled together 14B uh, with all the gizmos on was actually more than capable of winning the World Championship uh, anyway. So they uh, focused on making that reliable. But, uh, but Damien, I mean, do, do you think it's fair to say that the 15C is a kind of high watermark in terms of F1 technology, given all the things that were banned for 94? I think it is, really. I think in terms of um, the systems on that car, obviously that was the the peak in terms of um, traction control, ABS. Um, You know, they even had, almost had CVT towards the end of the year, um, which would have been uh, another step on. Um, And yeah, it's really interesting talking to the engineers of that time because they loved it for uh, the technical point of view but I think most of them also seem to recognize with hindsight that um, um, it was going it was getting out of hand you know it was get, it was it was getting so extreme um, so um, it it was um, from an engineering point of view I think it was a it, it was a high watermark and they invested an awful lot of money into these systems so it was a bit of a blow when they found out um, that actually it was all going to be taken away for 94. Yeah, that's it. And just to go through some of those things, I suppose, obviously, active suspension, traction control, automatic shifting, ABS, power steering, and they and Williams had a sort of a push-to-pass drag button, which I think sort of sat the rear of the car down, which we'll get onto later because it was one of those things that also caused problems. And in fact, uh, Jake, one of the things I want to ask you, the Williams, in terms of raw pace, uh, had an enormous uh, advantage over the field of, I think it was something around uh, 1.7%, which now covers the entire field. Now, bearing in mind that we're coming to the end of a 2023 season in which Red Bull has won all but one race so far, uh, but their their advantage is two-tenths of a second as opposed to a second in qualifying. So why is it that now a small advantage can be converted to basically winning all the races, whereas back in 93, despite having that edge, Williams only, so that's sort of inverted commas, won 10 of the 16 races. Uh, I think you have to consider the context of the era, as we kind of said, you know, um, simulation tools weren't quite as uh, evolved. And so you didn't go into a weekend kind of knowing that you had a perfect setup pretty much every time. And uh, I think that's uh, something that Red Bull has now, other than one weekend this year. It's been able to go into a weekend knowing vaguely what what to expect from the circuit and sort of picking up from there. Back in 1993, you kind of had to do everything from off the bat and from scratch and from what you knew, what data you had kind of already uh, hanging around. So that was one aspect of it. Second aspect of it as well that we don't necessarily have now was reliability. Uh, Cars were a lot more unreliable back then as well. It's something that I wish we still had. I wish we still kind of had that variable because, you know, seeing 20 cars finish most of the time, um, obviously it's great and it's great to see the engineers doing a fantastic job. But in terms of bringing up freak results, we don't see it quite so often. So that's another aspect of it. And um, I think as well, when you consider that season as well, 
did Williams have the best driving lineup on the grid? I think you, Alain Prost was sort of at a point where he was at his last season. I'm sure this is sort of uh, food for thought for, for a discussion, but um, was he driving at 100%? Was he not? Was he just playing the numbers, that kind of thing? Um, I, I would be inclined to say that he was we knew what kind of a competitor he was. And he was very good at putting a season together. And Damon Hill was in his first full season. And so he was, you know, going to be open to mistakes. So I think those three things in 1993 sort of adds to that. Uh, whereas now in 2023, we've got a driver that's, you know, hitting the marks every single time, a team that's hitting the marks every single time. Um, and that final two tenths of a second is often the hardest to find. Yeah, I think there's an element, isn't there? Now it's all about optimization, and all the teams, especially the top ones like Red Bull, are very good at that. Whereas we're talking about, we've just talked about all that technology that was pioneering. And whenever you're pioneering things, things are going to stop working and break. I mean, Paddy Lowe um, in the in the Williams piece that Adam Cooper wrote for the November 16th special on 1992 in Autosport magazine said, you know, we didn't do it all that well all the time, but we did well enough. Uh, and you wouldn't hear, I don't think you'd hear F1 people talk in those terms quite quite like that now but let's pick up on the driving point uh Damien I kind of had a similar feeling that I feel like and even Adrian Newey said that you know Prost was in a previous era where it was kind of the cars broke down more often drive you sort of drove them accordingly and he did enough the kind of Fangio doing enough rather than smashing the field and obviously Damon Hill was was a, was a rookie and a bit unlucky at times so was there perhaps a little bit, you know, we're looking at Ayrton Senna at McLaren and Mark Schumacher at Benetton. With hindsight, do we think maybe the, the best performing drivers from that year were in other cars? I'm not sure about that, to be honest. I think Prost, you have to put into the context of where he was at, at that time. You know, he'd, he'd started in Formula 1 in 1980. He'd been a Formula 1 driver for an awful long time, especially in those days, because careers weren't as long as they are now. And on the reliability point, you have to remember how much he suffered at Renault, and also in the early days at McLaren, in terms of how many races he lost, you know, he could have been a much more than a four-time world champion um, when you look when you look back at that. So he had a very different approach um, and a very sensible one, really. I think he. It, it's interesting listening to the Williams guys because they all have massive massive respect for him. You know, Adrian Newey loved working with him, I think, and and Patrick Head too. Um, but they were also a little bit frustrated with him because he was always this percentage driver who you know who who didn't put that full lap together until he really had to. Um, and uh, so they never really knew. You know, there's in the magazine article that um, Adam wrote. There's a, a comparison to Nigel Mansell, where every lap Mansell was balls to the wall, hundred percent on it. So you knew exactly that he was getting the maximum out of the car. And they didn't really know that with the way that, that Prost worked. Um, you know, but, but Prost had that immense experience and, and understanding that um, uh, you know, reliability wasn't guaranteed and he had to drive um accordingly i think and he knew he had the best car he knew he had a golden opportunity and he was never going to blow it and i think looking back at that that year i remember at the start of the year thinking there's no doubt who's going to be world champion this year you know you knew it was it was in the bag for him that's why he'd moved heaven and earth to get that seat that's why Ayrton Senna was so furious that it was Prost and not him in that car you know it's um and I, he did just enough it wasn't that exciting to be honest um but I think he deserves more credit than sometimes he's given yeah I think that's that's fair I mean uh, I think one of Adrian Newey's comments was that he didn't think that Prost was pushed too hard like he you know he, he didn't have to dig deep very often uh, and Dickie Stanford I spoke to, to Dickie about it as well two things about Alan that season one is he did struggle to get the car off the line if you go back and look at those races he had a lot of poor starts which made 
made you know heavy weather of it or of course the jump start that actually cost him victory at monaco in the end um uh, and the other one was perhaps he didn't understand the technology or didn't want to dig deep into the, you know the, those active williamses were i think tailor-made for nigel mansell I, I i kind of i would always put alan prost ahead of mansell in an all-time list of greatest f1 drivers but i also have a feeling if mansell been in that 93 williams i don't think senna wins five races i think mansell puts absolutely crushes everyone again because he was yeah, he was the driver for those cars, I think. You should also remember that Prost hadn't driven an active car, uh, certainly raced one at least, um, until that season. You know, he'd had the year out, the sabbatical, and he'd come from Ferrari, which didn't have uh, uh, active rides. So it was it was all new to him, and he had a lot to take on board. And I think um, that certainly um, influenced his early part of the season, I think. Yeah, and he he also, I think there were some ridiculous decisions against him during the course of the season. I know sometimes Prost was kind of pictured as a whinger. Actually, I think when you go back and look at what he said, normally he was right. And the one that really stands out to me is the ludicrous penalty he had at Hockenheim when he had a Fernando Alonso-esque awareness of what was going on around him as Martin Brundle dropped his Legio coming into the, uh, the third chicane. Prost took to the escape road to avoid a crash and then was handed a stop-go penalty. Uh, uh, he'd already bowed off Senna, actually, at the, at the previous chicane. Senna had spun trying a ludicrous move going out, around the outside. Prost had shown a bit more fighting in that, that day than he perhaps had done previously against Senna. Senna spun, Prost carried on, av- then avoids an, uh, an accident, uh, then goes on to take the lead. He's in the lead and gets a penalty. So, I mean, he did end up winning that race, of course, because Damon had a puncher, but Prost did have things go against him, uh, I think, that year. So just before we move on, I'm just going to go through the races that they didn't win, kind of to back up Damien's point, really. At Brazil, there was a radio miscommunication, which meant Prost didn't come in when he was in the lead for wet tyres and obviously then crashed out when he aquaplaned. At Donington, and we'll probably talk to talk about Donington a bit later on, but uh, they, you know, Patrick Head has admitted that they ran the cars too low at Donington. Uh, and they actually had an onboard system that could have raised it, but no one thought to use it. Uh, and they also had a downshift problem. They had automatic downshift, and it was locking the locking the rears coming into the hairpins, which is one of the reasons why it was able to pick them off so easily. Uh, Monaco, obviously, there was the jump start and then the penalty. And I think by the end of the season uh, at uh, Suzuka and Adelaide, the McLaren was actually genuinely uh, quite a quick car. Of course, the other win was, uh, was Portugal with Schumacher when Prost stayed behind him to win the world championship really so yeah he as Damien says he got he got the job done um so let's let's look at let's move across to, to McLaren uh, and Ayrton Senna and before we go into Senna Jake I want to ask you I, I would put it to you that the MP48 is a much better Grand Prix car than it than it gets the credit for is that is that fair do you reckon? Oh, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, first of all, it's a very pretty car. And uh, as we all know, uh, in the highly scientific world of Formula One, uh, a very good looking car is very fast. Uh, <laughs> on a slightly more serious note, yeah, it was, a, it was an incredibly strong car. And um, quite simply, it was just let down by the fact that it didn't have a top line uh, engine in the back. Um and that was all a legacy of Honda leaving very late in the day, deciding to call it a day in 1992. Had just done the V12 project, um, and then decided to call it quit. Well, sorry, done the V12 project, and then decided to call it quits, um, which kind of left McLaren with without any other options. A customer Ford was the only thing that they could realistically get their hands on, um, and and this was a couple of steps behind what what Benetton had at the time. So and, and this was a point of consternation throughout the season. So you had this really odd situation where 
McLaren's got an excellent car, but a really poor engine. Um, Ayrton Senna's not got the Williams seat that he wanted. So he's doing a basically a race by race deal. Uh, I think it was a million dollars per race that he was eventually paid for that season. Um, you've got Michael Andretti coming into the seat and being ill-equipped, let's say, for the rigors of Formula One. And you've got Mick Hacken waiting on the sidelines just in case. He, he was on the original entry list for that season um, before Senna signed late in the day. With all of those aspects to it, it was a really suboptimal season for McLaren, despite the ha- fact that they had a very, very strong car kind of underpinning those efforts. And I think, you know, throughout the season, Senna showed what that car could do. Yeah, that's fair. And it did it did get developed. It had all the gizmos on it as well, didn't it? So it was it was a quick car. But in defence of the of the Ford HB engine, I think it was very drivable. I think and when he jumped in the car in testing, I, I sort of realised that. Uh, and now much was made of the time by Ayrton as, as much as anyone else, uh, Damien, that the McLaren engine uh, was a step or two behind the one used by Benton. But actually... They had one key advantage, didn't they, when it came to the traction control system, which is perhaps, uh, which is in your piece that appears in the November 16 special, but uh, it's perhaps not as widely known as it should be. Exactly. Um, so when I was doing the research and interviews for my, my new book, Benetton Rebels of Formula One by Evro Publishing, all good book, booksellers. Sorry, I've got to get that plug in there. Uh, the, the big overriding matter in 93 that's, um, certainly Pat Simmons and Frank Durney were, were keen to point out was uh, the traction control system and um, Cosworth's uh, in their in their view conservative approach um, and they you know they were very protective of uh, of their engine um, and I was reading something the other day actually about a completely different subject in, in motorcycles when they when they built a, a motorcycle engine it was the same same with them they they did a Norton and uh, they didn't allow Norton to uh, they had two sets of engineers working on the on that machine um, because they they didn't allow Norton to touch the engine. So it's a very similar sort of approach um, that we we saw consistently in Formula One. Cosworth were very protective, and they they had a you know it was basically a mechanical system that was nowhere near as good as McLaren's. McLaren's had a very good um, an, an expanding um, uh, technical department um, on the, on that side through TAG. And so their traction control system was vastly superior, which I think in the pieces that you've run in Autosport, very clear that both sets of engineers on both 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 teams would agree with that, that McLaren had an advantage on, on traction control. And that was a key, a key advantage during that season. And actually, that brings us quite nicely to the Donington Park famous race that a lot of people think was Senna's greatest race. I've done the top 10 greatest Senna races and it was Estrel 85 was my number one, but a lot of people would go for Donington 93. One of the reasons that I, I, I didn't uh, put it, it was third, by the way, it's not like I ignored it, uh, is that he did have this impressive traction control system. Williams got the setup wrong with their cars. And I think that race, Benton's didn't even have a traction control system and uh, for, that, for that one anyway, So Schum- and Schumacher spun off. So uh, looking at Senna's season, it, it kind of, he, he topped the auto course uh, driver ratings for that year, which you would probably expect five wins in a, in, in a car that wasn't, wasn't the quickest. But I, I kind of viewed that season as a bit of a mixed bag for Senna because he, he was obviously making demands of McLaren that kind of hurt their development a little bit. He, they didn't know whether he was going to turn up. He made some er- a few errors during the course of the season, most notably at Monza twice, in fact, one early on and then one clouting into the back of Brundle's Ligier. But obviously there were incredible peaks. The, the Brazilian win was fantastic. Uh, 
and actually signing off with that win in Adelaide in the dry was was great as well. So where does where do we reckon? I'll put this to both of you really. Perhaps Damien first. How, how does that centre season rate? Was it his best season, uh, or was it a bit of a mixed bag? Yeah, I don't think it was his best season, but there's a certain romance to it because you've got Ayrton Senna, you know, this incredibly charismatic, fantastic racing driver who's in a very good car, but not the best car, and he's furious about it, and he's um, he's working furiously behind the scenes to try and resolve that for the following year. Um, this whole saga that went on in the early months with, with Ron Dennis about whether he's going to show up or not for those first races. Um, and meanwhile, he was delivering, as as he always did, you know, and um, it was it was perfectly poised. And, I, you know, I, I agree with you, the Donington race, it was fantastic and it's something we'll never forget. But it wasn't his best race. I, I'd agree with you, 85 was better, given that you know, he was driving a, a turbo-powered car in terrible conditions at Estoril. Um uh, and I'd say that he drove better in in '88 in his first title year um, when he finally had the car that he'd been looking for for the whole you know since he started. Um, he he probably drove better. I would think for me '91 is probably the, the season where I think he he peaked. That that's, um, that would be my pick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And again, it's that situation where he's actually facing arguably. Uh, certainly in the second half of the season, uh, an inferior, yeah, he's, he's an inferior car. I think the Williams was, was faster in the second half of 91 um, and um, and he still beat beat Mansell to the title. Uh, he dug deep that year, I think, and that was, I think that was peak Senna. What do you think, Jake? you think that's fair? I mean, does Senna's season look even better because, as you've already pointed out, his teammate uh, in Michael Andretti never really got his head around F1 and then let's not forget that when Mika Hakkinen jumped in the car for the first time at Estoril he did actually out-qualify uh, Senna and was, and was much closer to him really so so does that perhaps bring a little bit more of a context to Senna's season? I think so I think you have to consider Hakkinen when you, when you consider that because um, obviously jumping in basically a year or so without having sort of been driving well been racing an f1 car obviously been driving because testing was a lot more commonplace by that but still to, to jump in the car and put it head of center on the grid that's a, a really good feat and it was kind of showed what was to come from from hacking and later in the years uh when mclaren got you know had it sort of fall and then it's rise again and he started to win races he you know when he broke his duck eventually um so i does do think that counts against senna um and and we've already said that you know he had a very very good car at his disposal, and you said it you know it it does have all the all the gizmos and that kind of thing. Ron Dennis was quite insistent that it have a, a strong active suspension package, um, that it basically is able to take the fight to Williams because they'd been kind of over the last couple of seasons dropped off the the pace of its compatriot. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that ninety three was Senna's best season. I think. It was one one of his best. I think it was a very very strong year, and to to cap it off with the win at Adelaide, um, his final win in Formula One. I think it was sort of like we did, uh, people didn't know at the time, but it was obviously a very sort of poignant moment when you think about it in retrospect. Um, I do think it was a strong year, but yeah, I think a few things flattered him along the way. Yeah, I mean, just just to be clear, I think we'd all agree that he would have been our number one driver if we were doing a top 10 drives of that season, but it's perhaps just putting it into a little bit more context. Actually, it's a real crossover year, if you think about it. Senna's last year at McLaren, Prost retires. Obviously, Mansell has already gone from his proper F1 career, if you like. Uh, 
and Hackenden, Hackenden gets in at McLaren, Damon Hill's rookie season. I don't count those handful of drives in the atrocious Brabham the year before, really. Uh, and of course, perhaps the biggest one, certainly with hindsight, Damien, Marcus Schumacher and Benetton, this was their last year before they kind of cracked it, wasn't it? So were there signs? There, there must have been signs uh, during 93 that actually, if you'd look deeper, they, they were going to be a force in the years to come. Yes, I think at the time there was always this this doubt about Benetton because they'd, they'd you know for years really since the mid 80s they'd they'd threatened to break through and become a, a contender and they'd always fallen short for one reason or another there was just you know it's just a, a long it was a litany of good reasons which might sound like excuses but there were always good reasons you know um, and then the whole John Barnard uh, situation in the early 90s which which should have unlocked everything and then it all went horribly wrong and only lasted for you know, about 18 months. Um, uh, but by this time, by 93, um, everyone at the team says we were nearly ready. We weren't quite there, but we were nearly there. And um, they they actually reckon, well, Pat Simmons told me that he, he stands by the B193, that he thinks it was better than the McLaren and that they were let down by basically by Cosworth and by the fact that McLaren had, had the tag electronics department um, who, were, who were doing great great things at McLaren. Um and they were also, from from uh, a race perspective, they were still becoming race fit in terms of ironing out mistakes um, and um, just getting into the habit of winning. And Frank Durney gave me a, a fantastic uh, analogy about climbing a mountain, and that you know um, getting to the peak of the mountain is 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 the, is the equivalent in Formula One of building a fast car and proving that you can actually build. A fast car, but it's only the start because then you you look over the range of mountains and you've still got um, uh, a long way to go to actually um, to win races and win championships. And that bit is the bit where the team has to function at that highest level. Um, and we, as we know, it all came together in '94, uh, controversially so perhaps, but it did all come together in '94. '93, they weren't quite there. And of course, getting reliability and quality control in the system was quite a key part of that for them, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, and Derny joined at the end of '92, um, and he says his role there was exactly that: to basically get the systems working properly and to bring reliability to a team that he said, um, you know. And, and Rory Byrne has always admitted that during his time at Benetton, he put too much emphasis on performance and not enough on reliability, and it was a it was a bit of a trend. Um, that, um, you know, it took him years to iron out, actually, you know. Um, and it's, no one has a bad word to say about Rory Byrne, who worked with him. They all loved him. He was inspirational. Um, but he was learning. He was actually learning on the job uh, for at least the first 10 years of his career, probably probably for longer, he'd probably, probably admit. Um, and, um, yeah, I think I think Derny rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way, as he, as he tends to. He says he has Asperger's and he... Kind of, kind of says what he thinks and doesn't really care, think too much about the consequences. But I think he, you know, he played his part in actually making them a, a race fit organisation. Well, from one one team that was about to hit its peak to one that was having yet another one of its, uh, well, I mean, real, real lows uh, and almost into a rebuilding process, really, uh, and would end up with some of those key people from Benetton that we've just been talking about. So come on then, Jake, tell us all the things wrong with the 1993 Ferrari. I think it would be the understatement of the century to say, well, it wasn't just a, it wasn't a very good car, to be honest. This was a team that was absolutely muddled by infighting at the time. If you look at sort of Ferrari in, I guess, even in the 1980s as well, 
there were points where it looked competitive and you know it, it was at 86 that Alboreto theoretically could have contended for the world title but there was just never that I guess what's the word I'm looking for consistency within the team and then it looked like they cracked it towards the end of the the, the 1980s they did have John Barnard on board Mark Piccolini was leading the team it was it was looking sort of kind of strong they'd got Alain Prost and again was very very close to contending for a title but then by 1991 things had started to fall downhill quite sort of drastically the the sort of mid-season uh upgrade of the 1990 car that season wasn't very good the 643 that then arrived mid-season that was that that just didn't have the downforce uh and the ferrari engines were also very unreliable at that point so it was a, a mix of a mix of things and i think Although 1993 wasn't a good car, the 1992 car was the nadir because the engine was poor, the aerodynamics were poor. Ferrari had tried to do something distinctive with its double floor, and that hadn't worked. Uh, Harvey Postlethwaite comes back on board and decides, "Oh well, I know what will fix this. Let's put a transverse gearbox in it," and that doesn't work either. Whatever they threw at it didn't work, um, and it wrecked the career of Ivan Capelli as well, um, who was never the same after that season. So 1993 was a rebuilding year. You had Gerhard Berger come in. He negotiated himself a very lucrative contract with Ferrari while you had the whole uh, Senna, Mansell, Prost kind of triangle going on. Who was going to drive the Williams in 1993? Berger looked at that and thought, I'm going to give that a swerve. I'm just going to you know, do a $10 million a year contract with Ferrari and be all right. Jean that's very, but that's very Berger, well. isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. You kind of had this blend of it, youth and experience. Two drivers that actually got on very, very well, despite the fact that, you know, maybe they had a couple of clashes on and off track. Uh, they once uh, rolled Jean Todd's uh, Lancia as well <laughs> at the end of the season, uh, uh, an event. But they were getting the building blocks in place. Um, and the 1993 car wasn't a very good car because it was based on the 1992 car. They'd taken the double floor off. Um, the engine was a little bit better, a little bit more reliable, but still lacking, I think, a little bit. It had good power, but um, the engine blow-by that was the problem of the last one where it was just sapping power because air was escaping from it, that wasn't there. So thankfully, that was a little bit stronger. So it was getting those pieces in place. But Barnard didn't come back until mid-season. Jean Todd didn't come into the team and kind of pull at, uh, out of the mire until mid-season. So it was kind of sat around in the doctor's waiting room, ready to be seen to, and uh, the fixes weren't coming. And then only very later did they start to fall into place. Yeah, when you go through the races from 93, they had all sorts of problems. I mean, the engine, I think you say the V12 sounded fantastic, but it was heavier than the Renault V10 and not quite as powerful, not as drivable as the V8. Uh, and they had, I think Ferrari, you know, some of the cynics suggested that that they were quite happy to see the Gizmos banned for 94 because they couldn't get theirs to work properly. Uh, and in fact, Gerhard Berger's famous... Uh, well, it's got to be one of the most famous pit exits in F1 history, isn't it? Coming out of the coming out of the Estoril pit lane and shooting left across the track. I can't. Was just ahead of or just behind Derek Warwick? Uh, just ahead. Just ahead. So, that's it. it must have given Derek one hell of a shot, but it was shock. But it wasn't actually Gerhard's fault, was it? No. Well, um, Charles Bradley, uh, our motorsport.com editor, us in the US, who was very good friends with Jean Lacey, um, spoke to him a little bit about it for uh, and helped me massively with this piece. Um, 
and basically the story that Lacey tells is that their active suspension system was very, very micromanaged. So they had coded in every single kind of ride height that the car needed to be over the length of the track, which is great. But Lacey was contending at the time that the actually active suspension needs to be as unintrusive as possible and help the driver rather than take over and assume duties from the driver rather. So they'd mapped out all of the places where the ride height should be over the course of the lap. Um, but they hadn't accounted for a pit stop. So when Berger had come in for a pit stop, it didn't cross the line and it didn't trigger the change. So effectively it was doing the lap slightly uh, out of kilter. When he came out of the pits, the ride height just dropped. He hit a bump and then he had nowhere to go and speared across uh, the path of Derek Warwick. Um, He was driving the footwork and you can hear on the the, the TV uh, commentary, Murray Walker kind of explains the incident as he does. And Jonathan Palmer sticks the boot into um, into Gearhard, which I felt was very, very unfair, given that it was absolutely nothing to do with him. It was a purely Ferrari issue. So, yeah, I think they were very, very happy when Active was banned because it was just something that... And Jean-Claude Michaud told me, talked to me about it sort of briefly. He left the team ahead of the season, but he said you know, the only experience I had of active suspension was it not working because we could never really got our hands or heads around it. And, you know, that, that proved throughout the season. Yeah, Lacey and Berg had some quite scary moments uh, with their system during the course of the year. But before we leave Ferrari, Damien, with hindsight, surely the most key point of the season for Ferrari was, was the arrival of Jean Tot because, I mean, we, we have to credit him as being the architect, really. I guess look at de Montezemolo, obviously bringing him in as well. The architect of... Well, I suppose essentially stealing all the good bits from Benson over the years to come. It was. I mean, I think it was probably De Montezemolo's most important hiring of his of his career. And um, the interesting thing about Todd uh, is, it's, I always think of him a little bit like Alex Ferguson at Man- Manchester United, where actually it took him an awful long time for the for the the big victories and the big the big um, domination to kick in. And there was a. You know, an awful long, long way and a lot of miles between his arrival in 93 and when Michael Schumacher finally won that first world title in 2000. Um, it was, uh, he had a hell of a job on his hands, I think, to, to take Ferrari from where it was. And, you know, we always take Ferrari for granted that they're always going to be there. But I wonder, you know, how under threat Ferrari's place was in Formula One. When you look at those times in that era, you know, because they were so poor. And they had so many advantages in terms of the resources they had and Marinello and, you know, having a, a chassis and engine department integrated as they did and a test track on their doorstep and unlimited testing in those days. And they were still a mess, you know. And I think Todd's divisive character in many ways in terms of his personality, but you can't, you can't take away what he achieved in terms of putting the right people in place and giving them the space to do what they had to do and protecting them from... The politics that De Montezemolo would stir, uh, I think that was a big, a big part of it, certainly. Um, but yeah, coming in at that stage, he must have thought, "What have I got myself into?" <laughs> yeah, and, and in case people think we're being a bit harsh on Ferrari because well, they finished fourth in the constructors' championship, but on raw pace, they were two point eight percent behind Williams. Nobody on the current twenty twenty three is anywhere near that far off the Red Bull. So it's just that in those days, because of the the gizmos and everything. The field is much more spread out, so you know, two point eight percent now would you be on the back every every weekend? So they had a long way, as as Damien said, they had a long way to go. 
So, Jake, I'm not gonna. We're not gonna finish on the F1 side of things without. Uh, well, I'm gonna give you one good car that we haven't mentioned yet because I think we should probably mention Ligier, who had one of their better seasons with the Renault V10s. Martin Brundle, Mark Blundell driving. Had a few dramas along the way, but that was quite a good. That was a, a good example of a good midfield car. But you've also written a piece for Autosport.com covering <laughs> covering the real. Can we say sheds? Or worse words, <laughs> I think we can, some of I the cars. Because this is back in the... So for all the people that say, oh, we should have more cars on the grid now, y- yes, I think that's fair. And I certainly think the uh, the Andretti Cadillac you know, deal should... Yeah, they should be welcomed. I mean, come on. Uh, but there definitely is also an argument for quality control. So tell us about some of the cars that perhaps would, would have failed that test. Well, let's, I think 1993 was that point where the grid was was becoming a lot more professional. It wasn't like 1989 where you had, you know, Eurobruns and Colonies in tents. Um, you love it. Up pre-qualifying. Oh, I do love it. Uh, you know, I, I would very much welcome a 20-car um, paddock. Sorry, a 20-team paddock. But um, unfortunately, we're not going to get that. Um, I think the resistance to Andretti suggests that that's a long way off. Um, but you had this situation where the grid was becoming a lot more more professional. Um, you had teams that were were really strong in this era, like Tyrrell and Jordan. They were the bottom teams, uh, as well as Scuderia Italia as well. I think 1993 is sort of a hugely interesting season for that. March had just dropped off the grid. You'd lost Fond Metal, um LaRousse wasn't in a particularly good financial position and was going through all sorts of dodgy business deals. Um, it was, a, it was, you know, it was becoming uh, a lot more, uh, let's say, a stronger grid. So I think just to quickly burn through them all, Minardi, probably the strongest Minardi that the team ever made, always a back of the grid team, but uh, with Christian Fittipaldi, with... Uh, Fabrizio Barbazza and then later Pierluigi Martini, really strong car. Um, even the fact that it flipped over and managed to finish a race at Monza suggests that it's strong in two senses. Um, you, you had the Jordan that wasn't particularly... Uh, it was it was an okay car. It was just a, a weird monoshock front suspension. Um, team couldn't get their head around it. Rotating cast of drivers eventually landed on uh, Eddie Irvine and... Uh, then I was going to say, know. just to, they, <laughs> Rubens Barrichello actually obviously should have been on the podium at Donaldson. That was one of his first early, yeah. you know, F, you know, very new to F1 at that time, stand-up performance, the car broke down. So that would have been Jordan's highlight of the year, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, Barrichello was kind of foisted into that team, probably expected to play a second fiddle to, uh, it was originally Ivan Capelli that was brought into the team, uh, but he ended up leading even Thierry Bootsen and... Uh, Marco Apicella, Emanuele Naspetti, and then uh, Eddie Irvine, a lot of drivers who have never returned since. Uh, we spoke a little bit about Derek Warwick's footwork being nearly speared by uh, Gerhard Berger's car in uh, Estoril. Um, Warwick didn't. Warwick was kind of uh, brought back into F1 because, you know, he was very, very close to doing an IndyCar deal. Jackie Oliver said, well, we've got a seat open. You don't want to do IndyCar anyway. And Derek said, okay, let's do it clashed with Alan Jenkins, not particularly good season. Um, and then you had LaRousse in a very brightly coloured livery. Um, it was an okay car. It was very similar to the 92 one. It was running out of money. Uh, had to rely on pay drivers towards the end of the season. Just about limped through 1994 as well before dying off the end of 95. Sorry, at the start of 95. 
And then you had the two teams that didn't score any points. You had Scuderia Italia with that Chesterfield livery. Go and look it up if you're at home and listening to this podcast. Go and look up the 1993 Scuderia Italia livery because it's some kind of masterpiece. I don't know if it's a good one or a bad one. Um, the Lola car that it was based on was very, very poor. Lacks downforce. Diffuser was was very, very awful. Michele Alboreto absolutely hated it. It was the also the first uh, appearance of Luca Badoa in Formula One, um, having won the Formula 3000 season. And then Tyrrell uh, also failed to score any points. Um, it had the O2OC at this point. It was very long in the tooth. It went through its third engine supplier in as many seasons. And then the 021 was a really, really poor car. It was very expensive to build as well. Uh, Mike Cotton design. They've tried to put all of these sorts of um, interesting bits and pieces on it that just never worked. Um, both Yukio Katayama and Andrea de Cesaris, both very strong drivers, couldn't get anything out of it. So, um, yeah, I think that's the the full full set of the six and back markers. Just thinking we're going to have to get you to do a top 10 worst F1 cars of the 80s and 90s. No point in going back to the 50s because there were some one-offs, but maybe we'll think about that. But just to pick up on the Lola Ferrari thing, obviously we've spoken to to Mark Williams before, who's a, a judge on the Aston Martin Sport BRDC Award, went on to work and win world championships with McLaren. But he he recounts a story with that, uh, that Lola when Eric Broadley came in and said, right, we're going to go and do an F1 car and started talking about it. And, and everyone in the room assumed that they meant for 1990 because this was like July nine. Uh, sorry, yeah, for ninety four, this is like July ninety two, and then at the end, so like, well, you, yeah, okay, so we've got we've got eighteen months. He went, no, 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 this is for ninety three, and he knew he knew from that moment <laughs> that it was going to be bad. So uh, yeah, one of those one of those rush jobs that uh, was never really going to work. Well, um, obviously, nineteen ninety three wasn't all about F one, so we we'll just have a quick uh, we'll have a quick look at some of the non F one stories. And in fact, Damien, uh, as a you know your university self, what's what outside of F1 is the is the standout for you from 1993? Um, well, despite my penury situation that I found myself in those days, I did get to a couple of BTCC rounds, um, which was really exciting because Schnitzer had turned up, um, you know, uh, which were very exotic and um, fresh from the DTM, having, having uh, um, fallen out of the DTM and now we're concentrating on two-litre uh, around Europe. And they, they turned up with smoking Joe Winklehock, which was just fantastic. And with Steve Soper, who was um I always had a massive soft spot for Steve Soper as a as a as a Brit who had gone abroad and, and, and done well in, in Germany. Um and to have the two of them um flinging those three one eights around the British circuits all season in a great livery and with Charlie Lamb, who was a, I got to know a little bit Later on, when I got older and got involved with autosport, lovely man, as everyone, as Marcus Simmons's uh, short piece in autosport says, lovely man, everyone loved. Um, the whole thing was really exciting. Um, and uh, you had all these manufacturers coming in. It was the start of, you know, well, it, it, it had already begun, but it was the, the next the next level for the BCCC that year, having Schnitzer come in. Yeah, that was kind of really the key to it. That's sort of Marcus's point, really, in his piece, is that obviously the two-litre formula had been around for a, for a couple of years. Well, actually, coming in 1990s, a class, hadn't it, and then became the main show in 91. But really, Schnitzer coming in made started that kind of making it international. Because obviously, the following year, Alfa Romeo rocked up with the 155 and wings, and it all kind of exploded from there, really. But I did have a good fortune to talk to Steve Sofer about the 93 season. And he's, um, yeah, he was... He, Quite, quite, quite funny about it. Really, yeah. You know, Smoke, Smoking Joe was one of those drivers that could either rock up and be absolutely invincible, uh, or, or not. I think was the implication. And he's 
just my luck in 93. He was in his invincible mode and he said he beat me. He beat me fair and square because that was probably Steve's best chance of winning the championship, I guess. Well, certainly unless you go back to his early Rover days and when he actually did when it was thrown out. So, yeah, Steve, Steve Saber missed out on that one. Probably the best touring, British touring car driver not to win the title. Um, but what, what about you, you, Jake? What Baby Jake, what what do you, uh, what, what, what stands out to you outside of F1 from 93? embryonic jake i think um it's probably absolutely no surprise to you kev given that you know that i love indycar so it's got to be nigel mansell's uh basically almost doing an exchange program with michael andretti that year um going over to the u.s hadn't been re-signed by William. He, he wanted to to stay at williams but um i think he was demanding a little bit too much frank williams always thought that the driver was expendable um and so he wouldn't grant him his wish so he ends up going to to IndyCar to race with Newman Haas and uh, discovered the world of ovals um, had some massive crashes uh, one that separated I believe the flesh from his spine and it was very disgusting and he uh, he had to go to hospital to get it drained on regular occasions the fact that he raced on with that and went on and won the IndyCar title I think it, it played into Mansell's two sensibilities one which was go to a new series and absolutely crush everything, get on top of everything, learn everything and try and be the best. But also played into the other sensibility of gave him an excuse to have a, a lovely whinge about things. So um, I think it, it, it's such a it's such a sort of fantastic piece of history, the fact that someone can go over to the US and absolutely nail it and then fall off uh, massively the season after and end up sort of scampering back to F1 sort of tail half between legs um but and then go back to f1 and, and winning a race again so it was a sort of whirlwind for him over the couple of seasons the other thing about that year which uh, i really appreciated with bansell going over there was it was it was incredibly exciting and he deserves enormous credit for what he did that year but um it also meant that indycar was being shown on british television um uh, regularly because of because of him and it um, it really was a shot in the arm for the the whole series, I think, over there. And although he was difficult to work with, according to uh, the Newman Haas people, they did appreciate him, and they loved the fact that he was again that absolutely committed, hundred percent person who would not allow a very serious back injury from that Phoenix shunt to stop him. You know, and um, you know, I it, the, the clash with Mario Andretti that year as well. The fact they didn't get on, which dates all the way back to Lotus. Uh, and Mansell's first first experiences of Formula One, um, yeah, that was that was a special special achievement, special year. Yeah, it's a great story, isn't it? That I mean, because Kart had been a growing and strength, you know, it was a good championship before that. But Mansell going over there helped elevate it, didn't it? And really, that was a sort of a, a, a crest of a wave that carried on through the nineties. And you had Zanardi out there, and there were some great races uh, in IndyCar during the during the nineties. Uh, and it's just typical Mansell that that sort of bravery. You know, his four of his five wins came on ovals, uh, including an amazing. Amazing pass among the Penske's going around Stephanie Hansen, who'd been the same back marker that had been there in Hungary in eighteen. I was just some some great stories. I think the Lola was probably better as an oval car than it was as a as a sort of road course uh, car. But uh, yeah, we got a piece in the in the magazine by James Allen, who was part of that uh, sort of pop, was with was with Nigel for some of that uh, some of that season. Um, I guess I guess really I should uh, I, I should also add that um, that you know, it was quite a big year for the World Rally Championship because not only did Juhar Kankinen take his fourth 
world title, which was the first time anyone had done that in the WRC, but also had the arrival of a certain Colin McRae, uh, really. I mean, obviously, he'd been on the... We, we'd known about him, but 93 was kind of a breakout season in, in the legacy, incredible drive at New Zealand, and it kind of set him up for them becoming a, a championship challenger. So, uh, And yet, actually, the kind of most fascinating story that I didn't know about before we started this... Uh, in the in the 16th of November special is the one typically the one by Gary Watkins where he's managed to dig out a couple of pictures and and coverage uh, wasn't even in all sport at the time of a GT race at Paul Ricard at the end of the year that actually uh, Stefan Rattel basically says is the start of modern GT racing so fair play to Gary for doing his uh, for digging that out um so yeah, I think that's probably covered all, all, all the '93 motorsport, the, the major stuff at least. Well, am I missing something obvious? Not in terms of Anis's F3000 win. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Save that for James Newbold. You can do an F3000. I was going to say that was a very, I mean, that was a very Newbold point. It, yeah, I mean, it was actually a watershed for sports car racing as well, and it? it was the last time for, of Group C uh, at Le Mans. GT cars coming back. So it was very much a transitional period. Obviously, Peugeot winning uh, winning Le Mans 24 hours uh, for the second year uh, consecutively. So, um, yeah. Well, I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening to the, this uh, 1993 podcast. If there's anything forgotten or anything you'd like to agree, disagree with, uh, you can drop us a line autosport at autosport.com, or even you can email me kevin.turner at autosport.com. Um, so that leaves me to, to thank Damien Smith, thank you Jake Leg, and thank you listeners uh, for tuning in. Uh, we'll, meet you again on the next one. Sports Social Podcast Network.